Psychedelic science is exploding, and we talk to people at the forefront. So cut through the noise, converse with the vanguard. This is Mind Manifest. Well, hi there, and welcome to the Mind Manifest podcast. I'm your host, Niall Campbell. Today, I was joined by Dr. Chris Leatherby. Dr. Leatherby is a philosopher working on issues related to the therapeutic and transformative potential of classic psychedelic drugs. In his work, Leatherby argues that a traditional conception of psychedelics as agents of insight and spirituality can be reconciled with naturalism, the philosophical position that the natural world is all that there is. He is currently lecturer in philosophy at the University of Western Australia and postdoctoral researcher at the University of Adelaide, working on the Australian government-funded project Philosophical Perspectives on Psychedelic Psychiatry. His monograph, Philosophy of Psychedelics, was published in 2021 by Oxford University Press. I really enjoyed our conversation, and I look at it as just the opening conversational gambit to an ongoing discussion that I would like to have with people like Chris. I think the philosophical undergirding of the psychedelic renaissance is really important, so enjoy the conversation, and as always, I'll see you on the other side. So, uh, well, uh, thanks very much, Chris, for uh, chatting with me today. I really appreciate your time. My pleasure. Thanks for having Uh, me. Well, we are here um, in the University of Western Australia, um, uh, just in a really beautiful ground floor office overlooking a quadrangle. So um, it's uh, it's a lovely um, it's a lovely Perth day here. So um, I've uh, this is one of the nicer places I've done a podcast. So thank you very much for having me in your in your in your office. My pleasure. It is a lovely day, but I did get hailed on in the car park this morning. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it. We're getting uh, we're getting a few different seasons at the minute in Perth, but it's it's usually synthetically sunny, but not every single day of the year. And they don't put that on the brochure when you emigrate, which I think is um, not a bit of false advertising. <laughs> so uh, myself and Chris were just talking off mic. Um, just sort of more generally about um, the philosophy and its its role in the psychedelic renaissance and, and in relation pertaining to psychedelics uh, more generally. So I suppose some question which people might have is, you've written a book, The Philosophy of Psychedelics. What, what is the relevance of philosophy, in your opinion, to psychedelics and how can it help us to optimize the outcomes going forward sure yeah so i mean there are a few different ways to answer that question which is a very philosopher's thing to say but um the most obvious one and the one that my book focuses on the most is that there is this basic question that doesn't really get addressed by other disciplines and in some sense can't or there are limits to how much other disciplines can address it and it's basically this right if you look at the psychedelic experience if you look at the kinds of things that happen to people on psychedelics the kinds of things they report whether it's in a therapeutic setting or otherwise one very common theme is that they claim to have learned something right people come away from the psychedelic experience claiming to have gained knowledge of some kind and that might be knowledge about their own lives their own emotions their own um, biographical history it might in some cases be more esoteric knowledge about the spirit world or the metaphysical nature of reality or something like that And uh, there is an obvious question, right? If somebody takes a drug and has this incredibly moving and uh, sort of transformative experience that they rank, um, 
you know, among the most important of their lives in an altered state of consciousness and they claim to have gained some insight or knowledge from that, the obvious question I think is, is it real? Is it true? Um, or is it kind of a drug-induced hallucination? And um, I find it quite amazing how seldom that question seems to get asked these days and I think there are interesting things one can say about that. You know, one can speculate whether that um, reflects certain currents in our culture. I think it's interesting to note that people seemed a lot more exercised about this question in the first wave of psychedelic psychiatry back in the 50s and 60s. Um, But in any case, that is one of the main questions that philosophy is uniquely well equipped to address. I mean, so epistemology is one of the four sort of traditional subfields of of philosophy in the European tradition, and that is the theory of knowledge. So it's the area that deals with analysing the nature and possibility and conditions of knowledge. And so... um, philosophy has the tool that is very well set up as a discipline to address this question of uh, are people gaining real knowledge through their psychedelic experiences or some kind of delusion or false insight or Mm. something like that so there's a central um and there's a couple of things uh like always is the case when we're talking about philosophy more generally it's like a it's like being a, a mosquito at a and a nudist colony it's like we just don't know where to start you know there's just so many ways to discuss this but you know, the, the thing that I've picked up on from reading your stuff and, and listening to podcasts is a, a, a sort of, and tell me where, if this fits, there's a there's a sort of an incredulity at the lack of credulity of, of you know, wanting to assess why th- why, whether things are or are not true. It sort of seems like you're looking around at your stablemates, and I don't mean philosophers necessarily, but people who are ostensibly interested in psychedelics and saying, Okay, but you know this is pretty. This is pretty consequential stuff. Why is there more? Why is there not more scrutiny? So, I'm sure you've gone over this many a time. But the sort of tacit assumption that truth is important is something which is sort of in the groundwater in where we're at now in an academic philosophy department. It it is has a different ambient availability in different professions and Mm. i think that's what we're seeing now we're all of a sudden we're all in this together so to speak and there's this looking over the fence in different fields of inquiry different silos of expertise and being oh it doesn't seem like this to this sort of way into the the psychedelia cares as much about truth so um why to people who are listening and their general thought is I see where he's going with this, but like, you know, if it works, what does the matter? Why personally, and is truth very important to you? And why professionally as a philosopher, could you explain, you know, to to your profession like why is why is it important personally and why is it important at a professional level do you think sure yeah i mean this is a very hard question to answer because it's almost like you hit rock bottom here right so when you're trying to justify values in some cases you can go deeper and you can go more foundational and appeal to other values but to people like me who either think you know truth matters in some objective sense or just happen to care about truth a lot value it deeply personally it's almost like there's no deeper you can go it's you know if you consider 
consider this to be a fundamental value. There's no sort of more fundamental value that you can appeal to <laughs> to, to justify it. But I mean, there are thought experiments, right? So one famous one that I talk about in some of my work is the philosopher Robert Nozick's experience machine. So in his book, Anarchy, State and Utopia, Nozick is actually a political philosopher and he's arguing about theories of well-being and what constitutes a good life. And the um, thought experiment is aimed to refute hedonism, right? To draw out anti-hedonist intuitions, intuitions that something other than pleasure and pain matters in having a good life. And the thought experiment is basically just imagine there's this virtual reality machine you can plug into and you can program it to give whatever kind of experiences you want, you know, a kind of virtual reality existence that is as rich, rewarding, pleasurable, stimulating, whatever as you could possibly want. And you can actually forget, you know, you can organize things such that once you're in the machine, you won't know it's all fake, you'll believe it's real. The question is uh, not psychological in the first instance. Would you plug in, but it's normative? Should you plug in or would you in some sense be losing something important? And Nozick thinks that, you know, most of us are going to share the intuition that there would be something inferior about that life, right? That in trading a life in the real world for a life in the experience machine, you would be losing something important, something that matters. And the obvious candidate is, um, you know, your beliefs about the world would not be real. You would not be engaging with a real objective world external to yourself your achievements wouldn't be real if you climb mount everest it wouldn't really be mount everest that you climbed if you had you know a spouse or children or whatever they wouldn't be real people they would just be digital simulations of people and the thought is that you know this is something that that matters that we care about or that we ought to care about is whether our our kind of feelings of happiness and sadness pleasure and pain are actually grounded in real knowledge about reality and real engagement with an actual world outside of ourselves mm -hmm. so uh, to to come back to, to to the fact that those sorts of thought experiments are very useful i think in in helping people to maybe viscerally connect to something in the way that they might not initially intellectually connect with it mm -hmm. so i would imagine and I don't know if there's any actual research on this. I'm sure there is, but um, there's probably fairly um, reliable percentages of people in any given instance who won't get in the machine. And right. I would imagine that it's the majority. Um, the um, so what that uh, and what comes up for me is that the, the, it's like a sort of almost a motif that you see in different stories but the, the most notable one is the guy in the matrix who wants to plug back into the matrix yeah yeah absolutely and there's there's something about that particular character that it's it's not alluded to by like this is a bad man but it's not so much that he's a bad man it's that he's he's somehow foolish he's a cautionary tale yeah yeah because the inference i think that the view so this that taps into the same intuition i think like good storytellers understand that they show they don't tell so there's something about the average viewer uh, or the modal viewer i should say who's going to understand that that won't work yeah you know and so so then that's okay that's grand but that opens up a space where to sort of play devil's advocate i mean that 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 is then a rational argument undergirded by an intuition mm. So then someone might say, and we're going to get into your sort of more central thesis, it's, well, you know, you're you're basically, yes, you've got a cornerstone upon a cornerstone upon a cornerstone, but the ultimate cornerstone that you're going to level is something intangible that can't be, you know, well, well he, uh, but you don't understand, they're going to plug him back in and he's going to have a better job and all of this. But then the sort of, his undoing will be something which we cannot quantify, we cannot allow for, and surely that's a metaphysical 
a metaphysical, you know, factor that's right. going to be uh, that the viewer is expected to say, well, that will be in his life, so it, it won't work anyway. Mm-hmm. So, what would you refute to? Like, I, does does his does that thought experiment, you know, lever off of something metaphysical? So your thought is that in in the Matrix with the character, I think his name is Cipher, if I remember Cypher, correctly. Yeah, is that yeah, him? Yeah. Oh, Cipher, yeah. It's been yeah, a while. Yeah. Anyway, the thought is that uh, you're suggesting that the thought is with him that his kind of um, epistemic, his abandonment of the epistemic values of truth. His, his repudiation of that, yeah, know, not yeah. just rejection. It's like, I'll be able to unplug again. You know, I'll be plug back in and this it will work. I'll have a wonderful life. Yeah. But your suggestion is that the, the narrative of the film kind of uh, suggests that it's not going to work, not because he's sacrificing something that's valuable in itself, but because that's actually going to have other non-epistemic consequences. It's not going to yeah. work in any case. I mean, that's just my intuition. I think that's mm. I think that's my that's my reading of what I think is the intonation of the story. Mm. So um, I don't know if that's if people would think that, but I think. The machine, the sort of experience machine, it's not necessarily that people don't think that it would be worth getting into. It's that it would break down at some point. Yeah, okay, interesting, interesting. So, I mean, we have this lovely habit in philosophy of stipulating away irrelevant detail, right? Right. So uh, we want to make our thought experiments as pristine as possible. And so what we're going to say at that point is, look, you know, we we want to be very clear that if that's the reason why you don't think one ought to plug in, then that's not really addressing the question, right? The, the, The question is, suppose we had such a machine and we could be as confident as anything that it won't break down you know suppose you you knew to a certainty that it was going to work forever then would it be right to plug in would you lose something important if or you can you can look at it sort of hypothetically right as um, you know suppose somebody did plug into such a machine and lived happily in it for the rest of their days did they lose anything right did that person lose anything of value yeah Um, I mean you could extend the story on to be like later on in Cypher's life he experiences this unnameable ennui that mm. then leads him to plug back out of it and then he gets into this cycle <laughs> now we're getting we're getting far too deep for a, for a <laughs> 3pm on an afternoon um, but this um, I, I've, I've heard you mention that before and I think it's um, it, it probably shifts in my opinion the general thrust from oh I wouldn't want to do that any, anyway and I don't know whether it was yourself or someone that was chatting to you but Maybe a more almost like parochial one that doesn't require as much, you know. A, a hypothetical was, you, you you walk around the corner, and your your wife of twenty years is is not even having having not so much having an affair, but just as like an undercover agent for the Soviets or something. And it's like, yes, I didn't I did not love you. You know, this was all <laughs> fake. Children were necessary. You know, because as uh, you know, facetiousness aside. It's the fact that you're, you know, as Peterson might say, you're not where you thought you were anymore, mm. you know. So there's a, it's like, does that retrospectively, does, does the remembering self then not allow you to hold on to the memory of, well, I mean, we had the nice picnic and this isn't, that picnic happened two years ago, so it wasn't today. So what does that matter? There's there's some sullying, like a retrospective sullying to, to that. Right. And, and there's the sense, you get this sense that even at the time you were being harmed, right? Even though at the time you were blissfully ignorant, when you learn about it later, you have this kind of intuition, or a lot of us do anyway, that even at the time, without anything disturbing your mental tranquility, there was still 
still something objectively going badly for your life in terms of what was what your real relations were with the outside world and how they corresponded or didn't correspond to your conception of them um But yeah, I mean, I think it's an interesting thing. And I think, you know, again, it's important to separate the kind of normative question from, you know, of of sort of is truth or knowledge important in some objective sense from the psychological question, do we as people actually care about truth and knowledge? And I think, you know, human beings are complicated and often our minds are inconsistent in various ways. And I think almost everyone does care about truth for its own sake to one extent or another, right? People might care more in different contexts than others. They might often care more about other things. But I suspect as well that one of the things that um, undercuts that, one of the things that prevents us from from kind of following that uh, sense that truth is something that we want is... Uh, I mean, this is one of these things that is a bit of a cliche and it's hard to substantiate. It's a very broad, sweeping idea. But the idea that we live in a post-truth, post-modern age of alternative facts and so on, and there just is this pervasive sort of uh, epistemological scepticism, this despair of ever being able to attain anything like truth and knowledge. And so, you know, it kind of, in some sense, it baffles me that, you know, as I say, that people aren't more curious about this question, you know, are the things we encounter under psychedelics real or not but i suspect that one reason why people don't kind of get more excited about that question or more worked up about it is that they think we've got no way of ever knowing right it's this kind of skeptical sense that how could we ever possibly tell Um, and so this is again where a kind of philosophical mindset and a philosophical training can be valuable right because you know epistemologists you know philosophers who study knowledge for thousands of years have been trying to Uh, refute skepticism and show that we can have some kind of absolutely secure and certain knowledge of something whether it's you know the external world or truths of logic or mathematics and insofar as there's um, anything like a consensus at least in the english-speaking sort of western tradition one very common view nowadays is that look we can't attain absolute certainty. We can't attain a 100% ironclad guarantee on any topic, but nor do we need to in order to have knowledge, right? So uh, the view that knowledge requires total certainty is known in epistemology as infallibilism, and most philosophers who think about knowledge these days, I would say, are fallibilists. They say it's compatible with having knowledge about something that you that your knowledge is not completely secure and certain and that you might need to revise it in future and, you know, in practice we sort of all know this right we know that it's really important to be able to settle on and accept and act on kind of evidence-based rationally justified beliefs about you know the earth being round and vaccines being effective and all these kinds of things we realize that you know the and and i think criminal trials are another really great example of this right you can never kind of travel back to the past to directly observe <laughs> yeah, who done it sure. but you still kind reasonable of doubt. reasonable doubt reasonable doubt you still yeah. recognize that there is a possibility of coming yeah. to well justified evidence evidence-based, rationally-based beliefs that do correspond to the facts. It's possible to know in this kind of attenuated, fallibilist sense who done it, even if you can never eliminate all doubt or achieve total certainty. And so once you kind of 
make that shift, the shift towards epistemological fallibilism, then that applies very neatly to questions about psychedelic insights, right? So are the things people learn, seem to learn about their own minds under psychedelics real or not? Are the things they seem to learn about the nature of the universe real or not? Well, no, we're never going to be able to establish that with total certainty. We're never going to be able to rule out all doubt, but we can't do that about the efficacy of vaccines or the roundness of the earth either, right? So that in itself, the, the impossibility of complete certainty ought to be no obstacle to kind of tackling the question and trying to come up with the best evidence-based, rationally justified conclusions that we can. One, one, that, one example that is just, I think, even further demonstrates, you know, how we can... We, the juice is worth the squeeze as we go down the road to find out truth. Like it, it yields all the time. You know, it's not like some big major payout that uses this infinite regress. As if you ask a bunch of doctors uh, to find death, they will really struggle with that. But that doesn't mean that they're not going to be in a position to go to work tomorrow and you know pre- prevent people from dying. So yes. uh, every town, ta- every small you know town, sizable town, has a hospital in it. So we live with these uncertainties in a very proximal way all of right. the time. Right. And so, I want to help. I want to help help me understand. You have sort of delineated and sort of categorized different potential truths that you think can come from the psychedelic experience. And then we can circle back on, you know, get at that sort of central, I suppose, idealism and how that's you know perniciously in the, well, not perniciously the wrong word, but it's ubiqu- pretty much ubiquitous in the field mm-hmm. of psychedelia. If people don't haven't named it yet so mm-hmm. to explain what idealism is and then maybe with reference to the different categories of potential truth that you think can and you know just to outline those in, in terms of their relation to uh, people having a psychedelic experience sure yeah so um in epistemology in um again the english-speaking tradition people have come up with uh taxonomies different types of knowledge that we can talk about and so very often when we think about knowledge we think about what philosophers call propositional knowledge or factual knowledge and this is knowing that something is the case right so uh, if you know that the earth is round or if you know that a vaccine is effective or if you know that god exists you know this is knowing that some fact about the world is the case that something objectively is a certain way Um, and then if we look at kinds of you know sort of drilling down more deeply into that category and we think well what sorts of facts or propositions do people claim to learn under psychedelics there's a wide variety but two of the most common ones are sort of psychological knowledge about their own minds right they learned that their you know depression resulted from these maladaptive emotional habits that they developed in childhood or they learn that they have been you know acting on the basis of kind of some fundamental emotional insecurity or irrational jealousy or something for a long time Um, um, or on the other hand, they often claim to learn certain facts about uh, the metaphysical nature of reality. So like idealism you mentioned, so the philosophical view that reality is entirely constituted by mind or consciousness, right? Despite appearances, there really is no such thing as uh, the physical world, the mind-independent material world. There is only mind or consciousness. People very often come off sort of an ayahuasca experience saying something like this. Um, other people
people might say that they have learned that there is a real spirit world, a realm of kind of disembodied intelligent beings or something like this. So there's two types of propositional knowledge, psychological, metaphysical. But one of the important things I think as I've thought about uh, psychedelic epistemology, you know, the nature of sort of um, knowledge-related changes under psychedelics is that, well, propositional knowledge is not the only kind of knowledge there is right so we don't only know that things are the case we also can know how to do things and so philosophers call this knowledge how or ability knowledge so you might know how to ride a bike or how to program a computer or something like that and so i think that people often gain uh, certain kinds of knowledge how in the psychedelic experience you know they can learn how to do certain things and then there are other categories i'm not going to sort of give all of them right now but a third one that is also very important is um uh, knowledge by acquaintance and so again on an ordinary everyday level we can sort of understand this right so i might um, know all about you prior to today indirectly by reading about you online by reading your emails and so on but then today i meet you and become directly acquainted with you and i know you in some sense in which i did not before i have gone from knowing about you indirectly by descriptions to in some sense being directly acquainted with you and when we actually cash out the details of that philosophically again it's a bit more um, technical, but that's sort of the intuitive idea. So, and, and, you know, again, I think there are certain things that it's possible to know about indirectly that you can only know about directly through altered states of consciousness, um, in particular, you know, psychedelic states among others. Yeah. And um, so on those, on those two areas, the, the, the how, and then the sort of, um, I don't know, experiential, let's say, for want of a better word. Um, the how, tell me what you think of this. I, I can speak, and we've talked about this off mic, I have taken great pains to, well, not great pains, but before COVID went to, to Holland. I've had a psychedelic experience, a few, on psilocybin. But it's actually psilocin, which is uh, through truffles, mm. which then uh, are, uh, you know, through an enzyme or become psilocybin. So it's ostensibly the same as, as you know, your psilocybin trip, mm. but they are legal in the country. So I have had these experiences and, and can speak legally on air about them because for the very experiential reason that the last thing you want to do is be, you know, someone who knows quite a bit through reading books um, about, you know, unarmed human combat but you've never been in a fist fight you know there's a certain element of knowledge that this so seminal scholar who's never been in a fist fight in that regard he just doesn't hold a candle to conor mcgregor you know there's just right. a sort of and and this is why i think it's it's the rationale way and an actual mdma session for the therapists involved in uh, mdma assisted psychotherapy has been successfully argued as part of the fda approved protocol mm -hmm. and and i think that anyone i would imagine that you know anyone worth their salt thinking philosophically about that would understand their rationale implicitly. Absolutely. Um, yeah. the, the, we could talk more about that direct experience and how, how that maybe, I think, nudges, well, radically nudges people's intuitions away from, from the training, the type of training that you think is so important. Mm. But from the how, so in that experience, I've had sort of experiences where I almost feel, and of course, you're editorializing and doing violence to every time you open your mouth about an experience so I'm cautious not to but I have had experiences where I'm almost coming back thinking if I had you know grade 8 piano muscle memory in my fingers I would have been able to compose something out of that pull something out of the ether so your antecedent like 
hard-won Apollonian capacity, I think, can synthesize in that space. Mm. So there's something that bothers me when people say, oh, you know, such and such came back from this experience and then they invented CRISPR. And you're thinking, yes, but they weren't like working at McDonald's beforehand. (laughs) So this tune-in, drop-out culture is so unhelpful and actually so incommensurate with the learnings that you can have in in that how sense because you think, wow, you know, the more I, you know, the more I sow, the more I can potentially reap and bring back of of great use. Right. So I think that gets missed a little bit in terms of this is a type of finishing school for the amorphous ideas which don't have access to each other because of arbitrary, you know, walls in your brain. The way we have arbitrary quadrangles in this university that mm-hmm. won't fix the the more complicated problems like climate change or whatever the case may be. So the how is not necessarily going to be the opening conversational gambit from a mental health perspective, but it's not linear. It's also often, you know, I find that with people that they will talk about how they came back and the how makes their life better because they realize a way to generate more money or, you know, do something which which alleviates their depression. So that's just my point on the how, and then I'd love to hear your thoughts on how that is coming away from mental health for a minute. Are there other areas that you've noticed that are particularly interested in psychedelics and you because they see the potential to synthesize, to solve difficult problems. Mm. Okay, so yeah, so just a couple of things on Knowledge How. So the point you made is one that Benny Shannon makes as well. So this is a an Israeli cognitive uh, psychologist and philosopher who wrote a, a big book on the ayahuasca experience about 20 years ago and he's done ayahuasca about 150 times himself and interviewed a bunch of people and wrote this uh, book on the experience and he also has a paper on the epistemics of ayahuasca visions um so he talks about the various different types of things that that you might learn on ayahuasca and he talks about this phenomenon whereby you know in um, south and central america in amazonian regions medical practitioners use ayahuasca to make diagnoses right they take it to figure out what is wrong with someone who is ill and you know the, there are various kind of paranormal explanations offered for how this works that it, you know they get the knowledge from the spirit world or something and Shannon's take on it I mean he's basically sympathetic to a sort of naturalist worldview like I am and his take on it is yeah that there's it does work the practice is efficacious but it doesn't work via paranormal means it works because these people are expert medical practitioners and the drug puts them into a different state of consciousness that enables them to make different and better use of the specialist knowledge they already have as you say allowing different pieces of information to come together different neurocognitive systems to talk to each other so yeah that's definitely an idea that i I is out there and that i think has a lot going for it but on the flip side when i've talked about knowledge how gaining knowledge how under psychedelics there's a specific kind that i've tended to talk about and interestingly it's one that i think you can get um just coming in cold i think it's one that you don't really need prior specialist knowledge to get though it helps probably if you have it and this is knowledge how to relate to your own mind your own thoughts and emotions in the same sort of way that people learn to in mindfulness practice right so learning how to decenter and how to view your thoughts and feelings as just thoughts and feelings as you know things that are not reflections of you not reflections of reality things that you can kind of have some space around a sense of humor around you don't have to automatically assume that they're true or take them so seriously and so there is 
this whole body of evidence now showing that, you know, people who don't necessarily have any kind of mindfulness background or mindfulness training, they can have a psychedelic experience and afterwards their capacity to do these kinds of things, to view their own thoughts and feelings kind of non-judgmentally, non-reactively, actually goes up fairly significantly and might stay up for weeks, even in some cases it's been shown to be elevated for months. And so my interpretation is that what's going on there is people are gaining a kind of knowledge how, you know, through the experience of actually being detached, unbound is the terminology I use, psychologically from their thoughts and feelings, they get a sense of what that actually feels like, what it feels like to be relating to your own mental states in that way. And then afterwards, they can deliberately kind of foster that. They sort of know what it feels like. They know how to do it, um, maybe not necessarily in a really precise way. They couldn't write it down, but they can achieve... You could On an fMRI, they're, they're attaining the state. They yeah. have that knowledge. They're, they're manifesting, the, the dem- they're demonstrating that they have that knowledge at least in terms of the psychometric questionnaires they fill out now this hasn't been done much with neuroimaging but i think there are some really cool studies that could be done right so you know you've got neurofeedback studies of experienced meditators showing that particular brain regions like the posterior cingulate cortex key node of the default mode network seems to spike not when they're having kind of trains of thought but when they're getting caught up in it when they're saying oh at that point i actually got really hooked by it i could and just watch the thought with detachment from the outside so i think this creates you know some cool um, hypotheses that you could test you know when people have psilocybin versus placebo you then get them to do that neurofeedback task afterwards the ones who had the psilocybin they really are gaining these mindfulness skills this knowledge how to kind of um, detach from thoughts and feelings unbind from them and watch them in a kind of reflective non-reactive way they should be better at keeping the posterior cingulate activity down right they should have fewer and smaller spikes from getting kind of hooked into these thoughts but there are also studies right looking at um combining psychedelics and mindfulness training meditation practice and it looks like they synergize so this is a case where my line is um it's exactly that what you were saying in that the more specialist knowledge you have like the more mindfulness practice you have or whatever the more it's going to help you to advance in that ability but it looks on based on the evidence like you can get some of that sort of knowledge how even if you come in cold yeah um, <laughs> it's really really interesting i think that's really a good one where the rubber will really meet the road from a therapeutic perspective because anyone right. who's advocated um, for mindfulness practice in the types of people who most need it, uh, it's very difficult to get it off the ground because, as Sam Harris puts it, you know they don't know there's a there there. So yeah. there's these, um, I think, that capacity to... Um, not only to have a, an appreciation to, to sort of just consciously incentivize someone because they come back, you know, it's a clumsy term, but they come back and they say, okay, it is possible for me to, to um, separate somewhat. You know, I didn't realize how messed I was. So there's that conscious incentive that it's worth the effort. Mm. But then, like you say, there's this um, sort of um, period where they're, it's not like they're fully as back to being as bounded as they were prior and the, the term that i use for that is like i think of i'm not going to catch on but it's relaxiomatics <laughs> you know there's a, there's just that's the term that i would use to describe this window that people have mm. and it's why i'm very keen and i i 
and th- until proven otherwise, I really see a residential model to be the, the the best model for that. Simply to hold enough space for people logistically and uh, to get stuck in mm. um, for the for specifically for that reason and other ones as well. But it's an it's not just enough for people to be heavily incentivized. They have to have enough space to be able to capitalize. Right. So yep. it's an um, so maybe you've hit on something which I'd love to hear your thoughts on because I know this is an area of particular more recent interest for you um, is the possibility that the, the metaphysical experience isn't... T- tell me if I'm getting this right, but the, me- the, re- the metaphysical reports of the experience which people come back to, bring back, might be nothing but the egoic editorializing of what happens when they rebind is that have I maybe uh, so I mean I, I I say that about a certain specific class of experiences okay. right so there's a debate in all of this which is a bit removed from concerns about psychedelics therapeutic use it's more like connected to sort of esoteric theoretical questions in philosophy of mind and neuroscience and the question is can you have conscious experiences that don't have any conscious sense of self at all right um, and this, uh, the answer to this has ramifications because there are some theories in philosophy and neuroscience, some theories of consciousness that say, no, you can't. Anytime you've got conscious experience, it comes along with at least some minimal sense of self. So if you can show that there could be conscious experience without any sense of self at all, then that shows you that those theories have got to be false. So this is a significant question. And so there is now this big debate because right off the bat, you might think, well, of course there can be a meditator and people on psychedelics report this all the time. But it turns out that when you actually drill down into the relevant reports and look at them closely, most of them are at least somewhat ambiguous on this point, right? And most of them seem to indicate that there's still some minimal sense of self remaining. So there is this big debate now going on which as i say is a bit removed from concerns directly about psychedelic therapy that is just about how should we interpret these reports that people are making and are people really having conscious experiences without any kind of um, sense of self or self-awareness whatsoever and one of the possibilities that comes up in the context of that debate is that look you know um, this is just some kind of post hoc reporting, right? When people say my sense of self went away completely, it's not really a reflection of the experience they had, but of how they've interpreted it after the fact through certain kind of frameworks or whatever. Um, oh, I mean, also I have, I have talked a little bit about a similar concern in relation to psychedelics and meditation. I'm not sure if that's what you were getting at. There's, um, also this question about is there really some deep connection between psychedelic experiences and meditation practice and some people have kind of argued no that there's not it's all people interpreting their psychedelic experiences through frameworks from timothy leary right cultural frameworks that say there's a connection and there i've i've been trying to argue recently that it's not all kind of post hoc framing there are actually real commonalities there i'm not sure if it's either of those two that you were well, it's more the the so what I, I suppose what I'm getting at, and I've sort of bungled that, but you know, and maybe we should delineate between and sort of define the difference between self and consciousness as they are, you know, 
pertaining maybe I'd love for you to define those two because I think they get used interchangeably and that's a that's an issue sure so how would you define self versus consciousness in your sort of the general understanding and philosophy so let's actually do it three ways yeah, if that's okay yeah, let's talk about self-consciousness and self-consciousness right, yeah, um, okay, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's kind of required to really yeah, okay, cool. uh, get get thinking clearly about this stuff so consciousness is the broadest category right and this is a notoriously ambiguous word gets used in lots of different ways but when philosophers use it these days it's really kind of synonymous with just experience the idea that there's something it's like right and so you can think about what it's like for you to taste the taste of coffee or to smell the smell of a rose or to see you know a red flower or a blue flower or whatever in each of these cases there's some qualitative experience there's something it's like to be um, having the experience of seeing this thing or tasting this thing or smelling this thing and you can contrast that with you know some kind of electronic system, some kind of computer or whatever that might be able to discriminate those physical stimuli. It might be able to kind of use a camera and sort the red flowers into the blue flowers, but normally we would assume the lights are not on, right? There's no subjective experience. There's nothing it's like for the computer to be discriminating those stimuli. So when I talk about consciousness, I'm really that's really what I'm talking about is experience which encompasses everything from all the visual experiences we have all the kind of auditory experiences all the experiences of emotion of thinking about certain topics anything that kind of feels like something from the inside Um, and then on the other hand you can contrast that with unconscious information processing and there's a lot that goes on in our minds that is unconscious right so at any given point in time each of us has um, all kinds of memories you know just innumerable memories that are not in in consciousness they're being stored but we're not actually experiencing them at the moment there's nothing it's like for me to have that memory sitting dormant in my brain when our brains do all this complex kind of information processing to work out if a sentence is grammatical or not, we have the experience of kind of thinking, oh, that sounds right or that sounds wrong. But the actual processing that leads up to that point is unconscious. We don't we, we don't have any introspective access. It doesn't feel like anything to us. So that's what we're talking about. This is what philosophers call phenomenal consciousness. It's just basically any kind of experience at all. Now, to get onto self and self-consciousness, we sort of point out that among all the experiences we have, right, some of them seem simply to be experiences of things in the outside world. So if I'm having an experience of smelling a coffee or, um, you know, tasting a coffee, smelling a rose, seeing a flower, these seem to be experiences of objects out in the world. But each of us also, as we go through our life having these experiences, we have the distinct sense or feeling that there is someone having them. You know, there's someone. There's an experiencer as well as the experience, yeah. Yeah. And so that we call self-consciousness or self-awareness, this kind of sense or feeling that I exist, that I am someone to whom all this is happening. And now the reason we need to distinguish self-consciousness or sense of self from self is because um, there are traditions, most notably Buddhism, that are famous for saying, well, there is a sense of self, we feel like there's a self, but really there is no such thing, right? There's no real entity that that corresponds to. There are experiences, but there is no experiencer. There is only the misleading or erroneous feeling of an experiencer. So there are three notions. Consciousness, just any kind of experience. Self-consciousness, the feeling or experience of 
there being someone, an experiencer, and self would then be the actual subject, the actual experiencer, if indeed there is any such thing. Can I have another go at not butchering my question? <laughs> this is why, no, honestly, please, uh, dear listener, this is exactly why I wanted to talk to, to Chris and would hope to talk to him in the future because most of us out there don't have this type of undergirding, mm. but it is a scaffolding that will allow us to think clear. And I think it absolutely has to be on the dais at the psychedelic party. Mm. And that's not me being sycophantic. It's just, it's a, it's a rudder that helps all of these ships that are sailing off into this ocean of, of treatment and, you know, optimization and business and whatever. We, if, if we're not, if we have no, it's rudderless if we don't have an understanding of how to frame the questions and have some sort of agora that we can all come back to. So I suppose what I what I was trying to say was the the perturbation of um, of our of, of our phenomenology is you know is that's an agreed upon thing the expansive nature of the way that that perturbation happens expands I think our field of phenomenology that is it is us. Um, and the dissonance between our ordinary state of consciousness that we're locked into, on a, you know, the majority of the time, and that happens, then at any given, if someone is reporting this through words or through a writing, you know, we are we can I think assume that the things that went offline are now back online in such a way that they're able to report us them to us, and it's. Uh, we are astoundingly good at post-talk rationalizing things, so it could be a very clever technique. The, the, the sort of mystical experience, I don't, I'm just positing this, could be, it's like the spin doctor who's the, in charge of the, the president who's done something terrible, or, you know, has done something completely out untoward. They, they use all of their talents, they're backed up against the wall, and they create a fantastic story to help it fit back into the narrative of the presidency, mm-hmm. if that makes mm-hmm. sense. So, so that's the sort of confounding variable which I don't think gets paid en- enough attention to so when someone says yes we had all of these people that f- scored and it's all statistically significant on this questionnaire the the operative word in that sentence to me is not mystical it's questionnaire mm-hmm. <laughs> because they filled out a questionnaire <laughs> right. so that we don't so I, I don't know you know it's just so that's my concern about people going off to the races and saying yes but we put it in SPSS it's like yes but that's not the level of analysis that I'm concerned about yeah yeah um so that is and we we don't have to necessarily i mean i'm agnostic about it but we don't have that doesn't have to come along to the party for people to have these like i say it's in a relaxiomatic there is more to you than you could ever have possibly ordinarily conceived of and that is that is enough to move treatment resistant depression right and we don't need to throw the epistemic baby out with the bathwater in order to get there and we don't have to so that's sort of where I'm coming down on the. That's been my experience of it, in terms of its ability to just expand your consciousness, your um, your, your consciousness, your phenomenal consciousness, mm-hmm. uh, in such a way that when you come back, as if you have this framework, you can say that happened, but I'm not sure. I'm not going to just automatically assume it's because, because whatever, because Godhead. You know, that's not yeah, the yeah, sense yeah. that you then automatically go to. Yeah. So just to create space for that. Is that fair enough? Way to, yeah, yeah. I would draw some more distinctions, though. There are a couple of questions, again, that are useful to separate out. And one is, what is the actual phenomenology of the experience, right? What is going on when people are on psychedelics? Um, and another one is, you know, 
is it real? Does it correspond to anything in reality? And another one is what aspect or what part of it is really driving the therapeutic change? And so you get this finding that, you know, you allude to that scores on a particular set of psychometric questionnaires tend to predict good outcomes, right? So the kind of construct of a complete mystical type experience, which means scoring 60% or more on all of these kind of factors, transcendence of time and space, unity, whatever, is a strong predictor of having your depressive symptoms reduce, your anxiety symptoms reduce, your substance problems reduce. And that to me actually suggests in itself that that construct is tapping something real, right? So you raise these kind of methodological issues which are real issues that we need to be aware of of like you know first of all there's from having the experience to thinking about there's it a lag. after the fact there's a lag and then there's the difference between remembering it after the fact versus ticking boxes on a questionnaire so there's all these kind of points where noise can enter the process but still to me the fact that that kind of same variable across all these studies keeps predicting and not just therapeutic outcomes but also personality change in healthy subjects increases in well-being it suggests that there is something real there that it's pointing at right now my view is that when we look at what it's pointing at, it's pointing at a cluster of experiences um, that vary, uh, that have some sort of overlapping features. And there's one really common thing that they all have, right? And that's profound change to self-consciousness, to the sense of self. So I think that if you look at all the experiences people have that get picked up by this kind of um, instrument of a, this construct of a complete mystical type experience, some of them, relatively few I reckon, certainly not all of them, are actually full-blown mystical experiences in the classic sense, right? The sort of experiences that William James, Walter Stace talk about where you really feel like you have gained some, you've had some profound unity with um, some kind of the transcendent, source. transcendent, yeah, Godhead, the source, yeah. the principle underlying all of creation and that, you know, it has all those those factors in spades, right? And then I think there are other um, experiences that people have that are in the territory of that, but they wouldn't really be a full-blown classical Stacy and Jamesy and mystical experience. But what they all have, because, you know, the cardinal feature um, is unity, right? This sense of unity is, you know, has always been regarded as the cardinal feature of the mystical experience. Um, and that's what seems to be in common to all of them. So you can look at reports of people who became one with the Godhead or the cosmic consciousness. And then you can look at reports from Michael Pollan, who kind of had psilocybin and he had this cathartic experience of, you know, merging with the Bach cello suite that he listened to and all these, this confrontation with mortality and all this kind of stuff. But he says afterwards, you know, it didn't lead me to believe in any cosmic consciousness. It didn't tempt me to, da 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 now, one way that people approach this is they say, well, the experience is fundamentally the same, but people are just interpreting it through their existing frameworks. I don't think it's that simple. I think the experience actually does differ. And some people have experiences that really do seem to be of a cosmic consciousness or a godhead or whatever. And other people like Pollen have experiences that don't seem to be of that, but they all fall into this larger basket, this coarse grained construct of the mystical type 
type experience and what ties them all together as i say is the disintegration of the ordinary sense of self somehow and it needn't be complete but some profound change where you kind of are liberated temporarily from your ordinary sense of who you are your ordinary way of seeing yourself and so it becomes more flexible as you say you realize that you're much bigger than you thought you were there's much more to you than you thought there was and you also realize how constructed and contingent and flexible your sense of who you are really is and that you can try all sorts of different um, forms of self-consciousness on for size and you can come back and kind of reinvent yourself as someone who's not an addict as someone you know whose life can have kind of positive things happening in it as someone who doesn't have to be uh, fearful of the social world or who can even you know on a basic level see their body in a different way relate to their body or their family members or whatever in a different way Mm. Um, and I think in a way I mean surprise surprise my bumbling around hasn't led us to find out what the ground truth is which which if anyone was listening I'm very sorry we haven't <laughs> we were planned to get to that by this afternoon but it transpires we'll have to leave that for another day so but, much for my but, insistence that we yeah. can arrive at truth if we try <laughs> no, exactly well we've debunked this philosopher's belief that you can get at truth but um, <laughs> but um, I think that which you've alluded to that capacity to to just see that you aren't your current instantiation. You know, I think that's a point that regardless whether you're the most radical materialist or some, you know, nothing but metaphysics door to door, we can all agree on the fact that th- th- that capacity is, is, I think, worth, worth the price of admission and uh, admission of these into back into our societies. The, the question for me is not, we're almost to a certain extent splitting hairs on that the question is the task the task that we all have um is i believe how do we do that in a way that is sort of commensurate with the rest of our lives Mm. Uh, and that's no mean uh there's no small task (laughs) i would um i'm you've been very gracious with your time there's a hundred and one things we didn't get to (laughs) my question for you is i'm actually going to put everything in the show notes that we've discussed and where of people to find you but Mike, what I would really like to promote is people who know that they are lacking in this way of thinking to maybe put them on to a good quality book that you would recommend if you had someone who was intrigued, understood they needed it. The philosophical deepening that happens in the psychedelic state, you sort of want to reiterate, uh, re- recapitulate that in your life. What book would, book or books would you recommend that people pick up myself included so the next time they either listen to or I talk to you or I'm just you know kick the can a little bit further down the road do you have any recommendations I mean this feels like a bit of a trap right because surely I want to say my book <laughs> yeah well I've you should you should absolutely fill us off the, 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 the philo- please plug your book away I have spiked the ball up play or I've Put the ball up, please just spike it over the other side of the net. So <laughs> so I have written a book about these issues. It's called Philosophy of Psychedelics and it was published um, in the last month or two by Oxford University Press. I think um, at least some of it will be uh, comprehensible to the non-philosopher. I tried to write it as clearly as I possibly could. It does get a little bit technical at times. Um, I mean, but in terms of just a general introduction to um, philosophical questions and the sorts of philosophical issues one might find find oneself pondering after a psychedelic experience um uh well 
non-psychedelic specific. So there's a philosopher called Thomas Nagel who actually is um, responsible for this phrase. A couple of times I define consciousness in terms of what it's like. So Nagel is the one who um, coined that phrase and made it popular with a, a paper back in the 1970s, What Is It Like to Be a Bat? Um, but he has some wonderful books. I think um, one of them is called Mortal Questions. Um, I think that might maybe be the best one. to, But just, you know, I think from 1986, whether it's Mortal Questions or... Or, uh, oh, he's got another one called The View from Nowhere. And um, what he does is amazing because he explores some of the deepest perennial issues of philosophy in very clear, very accessible, very comprehensible language, but still in a way that engages with the issues in depth and doesn't just provide an overview, but also kind of advances views and arguments of his own. So he's a wonderful place to start. Um, Bertrand Russell is also really good, uh, really classic for kind of, um, you know, learning about um, philosophical issues in general, books of his like The Problems of Philosophy. But also I just really recommend uh, Michael Pollan's book, How to Change Your Mind. I mean, I think that's actually for anyone new to psychedelics who doesn't know a lot about psychedelic science or the history of psychedelics, that is my go-to recommendation for where to start. But I also love it because it actually explores a lot of the same issues that I do, right? It explores a lot of these philosophical issues, epistemological issues from a naturalist materialist standpoint and in a way that is informed by direct experience he doesn't use the philosophical jargon of course he's not a philosopher he doesn't go deeply into the philosophical intricacies but these are the same sorts of concerns that are animating him they're the same sorts of themes that he's reflecting on in that book so me thomas nagel bertrand russell michael pollan <laughs> <laughs> that's the four horsemen <laughs> something like that <laughs> yeah well we'll uh, we'll link to all of those um different books and recommendations and do you, do you have an audio version of your book uh not yet i don't know if there's going to be or not but um, there isn't yet anyway isn't something to something to do um cool well listen i thank you so much for your time i really appreciate it, it was I had a blast talking to you i'm sorry if i wandered down a few cul-de-sacs that you had to reverse me out of but um that's i think all part of the process so um and if people do want to have ideas or you know want to get in touch where where do you where would you, which should i direct people to yeah so i've got a website um chrisleatherby.com it's not very good because i'm an academic not a website designer but it's there and it's got my information i'm on twitter as well at chris leatherby and um, my email address is very easy to find online okay yeah cool well we'll link to all of those um even his email address as well i <laughs> <laughs> uh, might read the day when, when this book when your book blows up as part of the four horsemen you might read that day you might need to change um but listen thanks so much for your time and uh, i look forward to hopefully chatting again in the future my pleasure thanks so thanks for listening and i hope you enjoyed that conversation so in terms of supporting the show it would mean a lot if you could subscribe uh, check out the website mindmanifestpodcast.com where you'll find really detailed show notes and as always please leave a review on itunes or wherever you get your podcasts it really helps the channel So thanks again for listening and until next time, no late to marry.